0: Many questions as the surviving Boston suspect is charged. Today, Monday, April 22nd. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Boston mourns its dead and tries to piece together the puzzle of what happened. The clues about the suspects just don't add up.
1: People seemingly integrated, but uh, some kind of dissonance between their identities. It's still very, very, very strange. And there are lots of why. You know, everyone is asking why.
0: The details aren't adding up in Dagestan either, where the older suspect supposedly went to renew his Russian passport and visit his father.
2: Tamerlan was there for a few months without his father. Neighbors say that he only showed up in, in the neighborhood around March. The father arrived in May. And we learned today that he never picked up his
3: passport. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. Hi, I'm Marco Werman. This is The
0: World from Boston. A moment of silence was observed this afternoon here in Boston and elsewhere around the nation in remembrance of the Boston Marathon bombings a week ago and to pay tribute to victims of the attack. Earlier, the surviving suspect in the case was formally charged at his hospital bed. Nineteen-year-old Dzhokhar Tsarnaev is accused of using a weapon of mass destruction resulting in multiple deaths. If convicted, he could face the death penalty. The indictment makes clear that the suspect will be tried as a civilian in the federal courts and not as an enemy combatant. So one week after the bombings, authorities now begin to build their legal case. But we're all still trying to understand what could have propelled two Russian-born immigrant brothers to commit such an atrocity. One focus is their Chechen background. The Russian Republic of Chechnya has a long history of violence. Separatist insurgents there have long used terrorism against the Russian government. Brian Glenn Williams teaches Chechen history as a professor of Islamic history at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. That's the same college attended by Jokart Surnayev. Williams actually had brief contact with him when Surnayev was a high school student and researching his Chechen roots for a school project. Williams has studied the alleged links between Chechen insurgents and al-Qaeda. He thinks the connection is tenuous at best.
4: One of the biggest sort of lies in the war on terror is that the Chechens are somehow a subplot to al-Qaeda's war against America. And this is an effort on the part of the Russians to sort of conflate their ancient histor- historical war with the secessionist Chechens with al-Qaeda's war in America. So there have been foreign fighters who have come to Chechnya to fight and help the Chechens out, mainly Arabs and Turks. But the Chechens have their own hands full fighting Russia. They don't see America as their enemy, and they certainly haven't contributed to any al-Qaeda plots.
0: But haven't, uh, haven't Chechen, like independent Chechen freedom fighters, ventured into Afghanistan as Mujahideen, both during the Soviet occupation and e- even now with the, the, the forces there?
4: In fact, during the 1980s, when the Mujahideen freedom fighters were fighting against the Soviet Union, Chechens fought in the ranks of the Soviet army. Remember, Chechens are Soviet citizens. And in fact, the first president of Chechnya, a guy named Jokhar Dudayev, for whom this Jokhar Tsarnaev, the terrorist in Boston, was named for, the original Jokhar Dudayev, the president of Chechnya, was a general in the Soviet army fighting against the Afghan Mujahideen freedom fighters back in the 80s. And in fact, No Chechens were ever arrested in Afghanistan. None were sent to Guantanamo Bay. I actually traveled to Afghanistan myself in 2003 and interviewed Taliban prisoners of war looking for Chechens. And um, I couldn't find any. No passports been found. No one's ever photographed one. There's only a big myth that the Chechens, were a small group, there's only a few hundred of them fighting, have somehow migrated across Eurasia to take on America in a struggle in defense of the Taliban. It makes no sense.
0: Brian, you say it doesn't make sense to you why Chechens w- would attack the U.S. Um, y- you almost seem agitated by the notion. W- why is that?
4: Because the Chechens I know, and you know, I- I- I'm friends with a former Chechen foreign minister, Ilyas Akhmadov, uh, who, who for many years spoke for the Chechen people. And, you know, he and the other Chechens I've met are all full of admiration for America. I, I-, I or so the Chechens I know say that they emulate George Washington for having defeated the British Empire and gaining freedom from the 13 colonies. We haven't engaged in any, any sort of support for the Russians against the Chechens. And the ones here tend to love America. So I think that this Boston Marathon bombing has nothing to do with Chechen objectives, uh, Chechen uh, desires, uh, or, or their historical views of America.
0: Brian, I know Jokhar Tsarnaev was a student of yours. I mean, and I know a lot of people have been talking to you about what that means. I mean, what does it mean to you?
4: Well, see, he, he was a student of mine. He was a student of a friend of mine at Cambridge Ridge Latin who then sent him to me to learn more about Chechnya. And it, it was such a brief interaction that doesn't mean much to me. You know, all, all I can, I've had a little bit of criticism for perhaps uh, providing some information on Chechnya, but I got criticizing uh, someone for giving information to an Irish person about Ireland for fear that they might join the IRA. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense.
0: And I gather you've also been personally touched by this uh, tragedy, the bombings last week, uh, affected people you know.
4: I was about a mile from the bombing. We went off, and we, we had a, uh, two friends racing and a couple friends at the finish line. So we, we were very upset. You know, We didn't know what was happening uh, at the time. Uh, and then my, my friend, Steve, who's at Boston Latin, is a very close friend, who I, I'm not close with, but uh, he has a friend there whose uh, children were injured in the bombing. So uh, certainly that it drives home just how close you know, all of us are to this whole thing, that it, these aren't just strangers in some foreign land like in Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, this is, this is a war that's come to our own city.
0: So you don't really see your position on staff at uh, UMass Dartmouth as uh, having really anything to do with, with Jokar. You just happen to be there, and you know something about Chechen history.
4: Right. One of the things is that I, I really enjoy doing as a historian is interacting with the community and share uh, my information, uh, history, uh, about these groups and, and to put some context into these things. Uh, so I, it's something I'm proud of. And I, I think that, you know, it's hard to remember every detail of all, all the interactions I've had, but, it, you know, I, I really enjoy doing it.
0: And yet, in the last few days, the world is waking up to what Chechnya is, what it means, and uh, not really the way you'd like to be uh, exposing this part of the world, I imagine.
4: No, you know, it, it's a shame that it comes in this light. And I, I have a fear. You know, I, I, nothing can explain. These inexplicable acts of, of, of terror and violence carried out by these people, and and at this point, it's just you know uh, theorizing about whether I have any to Chechen or not. But certainly, I hope to take advantage of this this moment to teach and educate and plug some history into this thing and and, and shed a light on the Chechens not just as a terror nation, but also as victims. You know, remember the Chechens have lost about 200,000 people uh, to the Russians since uh, this war began. Uh, that, that's almost genocidal, you know, there's less than a million Chechens. Uh, so I'm hoping to put a human face on the Chechens during this time of grieving, as, as well as trying to say that nothing can explain or rationalize this sort of terrorism, even if it, it is in defense of, of Chechnya or, or what other cause.
0: Have you been to Chechnya?
4: No, I've not. The closest I got to Chechnya uh, was the neighboring republic to the south, Azerbaijan, and also to the neighboring Russian province, the north, Stavropol. But in both cases, I couldn't get into Chechnya because it's it really a heart of darkness. It's one of the most dangerous lands in the world. It really really is a a terrible place, and your heart goes out to people living in that, that war zone.
0: Brian Glenn Williams, professor of Islamic history at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Laure Mandeville has been to Chechnya. For 20 years, she covered Russia and its Caucasus region for the French newspaper Le Figaro. Mandeville is now chief U.S. correspondent for that paper, and she came to Boston over the weekend to speak with members of the Chechen community here and to friends and neighbors of Boston bombing suspects Jokar and Tamerlan Tsarnaev.
1: Well, it was extremely uh, strange because, you know, I had all these informations in my head that I had read in the American media about the two brothers, Tsarnaev. So I, I had the feeling I, I knew these guys, and then having covered Chechnya also, having this sort of idea of, of their psychology, and going from house to house, shop to shop, restaurants in the streets around and in this Norfolk Street, it was very bizarre, as if walking in their steps and actually knowing them and meeting a lot of people that knew these guys. It was a very family-like community,
0: and rather well liked, from my understand. You spoke with some of Johar's uh, classmates. What did they tell you about him?
1: Yeah, they they all mentioned that uh, Johar was a, was a very nice and uh, open uh, guy, pretty joyful. Uh, I mean, it, it was very striking, the unanimous positive echoes that I got. And, for instance, I went to the gas station a, a couple of blocks away from their house. And, and the guy who, who is a student from Morocco, he told me that he knew Johar, that he was a great guy. They talked together about school and exchanged you know, jokes. And he, he was actually at the gas station when Dokar and Tamilan came to carjack a car. Incredible.
0: Now, you've also spoken with Chechens in the greater Boston area. What do they think about this whole episode?
1: They are totally crushed. You know, they, they're stunned and uh, horrified by what has happened. And they're trying to understand because for, for the Chechen community coming to the West, you know, I also talked to a lot of Chechens in, in France. You know, there are lots of Chechen refugees. And they're all saying, we came to the West to escape Russia, to escape uh, the horrible uh, tragedy of the Chechen war. And, and here we found a peaceful place. We are very grateful to America, to Europe that they welcomed us. So we, we can't just understand how a Chechen could do that. And so they are also in denial, thinking it's some kind of plot.
0: Having covered the war in Chechnya, Lor, I mean, how do you make sense of this? Does it compute?
1: Frankly, it doesn't compute, and uh, if you link it directly to Chechnya, precisely because of what these Chechens are saying, that uh, the Chechens used to see the—I mean—they they see the West as kind of escape and sort of counterbalance to Russia. That they they see Russia as evil, their enemy. So the West was the friend, you know, the supporter. But at the same time, you know, it reminds me much more of the uh, sort of lone wolf. Stories of radicalization, also very strange of uh, people like Faisal Shahzad, you know, the Times Square bombing or people seemingly integrated, but uh, some kind of dissonance between their identities. But uh, it's still very, very strange. And everyone is asking why.
0: If you had to set aside kind of some uh, particular Chechen dissonance, what what is that?
1: I was actually very interested, you know, when uh, looking into the the website of Johar, that he he was actually living, it seems to me, in in two different worlds. You know, he had his American world, this world of adoption. He came to America, he had his buddies, he was uh, uh, pretty nice to everyone. But was he totally intimate with the American society? That's a question I have because this is a country of different communities and they're friendly, but they're not maybe totally, uh, you know, close. And and the Chechen society, they need these very intimate daily interaction. And I think he found that much more strangely, on Internet with the Chechen-Caucasian community, and I would say more largely the Russophone community. And when you look into the website, he's having jokes there. He's totally at ease with this Caucasian-Russophone culture, as if he was being swallowed back by a a culture that he didn't actually know, which is very strange. And you're talking about
0: the younger brother now.
1: Yes. I find it very strange that he grew up here, but at the same time, He was being swallowed, it seems to me, by the world he came from and the world that he didn't know so well.
0: You talk about these intimate interactions that uh, Chechens come to expect on a day-to-day basis. What, what about family? Where does that fit in? Is that part of those intimate interactions?
1: Oh, it's it's extremely powerful in, in the Chechen world. You know, the, everything uh, sort of uh, circles around the family. So I, I think, you know, the, the the father and the mother and the grandparents, they sort of give, you know, sort of a center of gravity to the family. And I guess when, when the parents went back... Which was t- how many years ago? We, we don't know exactly. I think it's about a year ago or a year and a half. Uh, maybe the father went back earlier because he was sick. And uh, so the two brothers were left alone. The the older was already, it seems, on a bad path. I mean, not being integrated, not having a job, sitting home with with the kids while his wife was working, which in Chechnya would be degrading. You know, the man has to bring the money, the woman has to stay home. So I think for him, it was probably some kind of failure. And probably Johar, the youngest, he was under the influence of his brother because in, in this world, the older... Brother is always the one you look up to. And he would always, it seems, follow what the brother would say.
0: Laurent Mandeville, Chief US Correspondent for Le Figaro, thanks so much.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: International news in our own backyard. Find more of our in-depth coverage of the marathon bombings and their aftermath from our team here in Boston, including interviews with many people who knew the suspects and many more impacted by this story. That's all at theworld.org.
3: This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There was a big story out of Guatemala that we couldn't get to last week,
0: but we want to tell you about it now. The genocide trial of former Guatemala dictator Efrain Rios Montt was thrown into complete disarray. On Thursday, Rios Montt's defense team tried to walk out of the trial. Then that same day, a judge in a lower court tried to annul all of the proceedings. And that evening, Guatemala's attorney general quickly condemned that ruling. Kate Doyle is with the Guatemala Documentation Project for the National Security Archive. She's just back from Guatemala City and brought me up to speed, beginning with what happened after the dramatic events of last Thursday.
5: On Friday, the tribunal actually reconvened at 8.30 in the morning, and the president of the tribunal, Judge Yasmin Barrios, read a very brief and very strong statement rejecting what she called the illegal order of this lower judge and announcing that this trial would go on. That The issue now stands before the constitutional court, which is essentially the highest court in Guatemala that can make decisions on constitutional issue. The court will now decide whether or not the questions raised by the defense team about the handling of evidence were proper or not. And that will essentially decide the fate of this trial.
0: Kate, just so our listeners really get what's at stake here, r- remind us what the charges are against uh, Rios Mont and just how unprecedented this trial is.
5: Efrain Rios Mont, who was a former dictator in Guatemala from 1982 to 1983, and his chief of military intelligence, José Rodrigo Sanchez, are charged with Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity, targeting unarmed civilians in the Mayan communities of the Ixil, an area in northwestern Guatemala, where much of the sort of scorched earth campaigns of the army's counterinsurgency took place in the summer of 1982. The case identifies almost 2,000 victims of these counterinsurgency campaigns, men, women, children, the elderly, and accuses the general of having overseen and ordered dozens of massacres carried out in that region. The trial is extraordinary because there has been no other instance in the world where a national court with national judges has been able to try a former head of state for the crime of genocide. Uh, Therefore, it's, it's a groundbreaking trial, and the whole world is watching how it unfolds.
0: Indigenous groups were furious in the streets of Guatemala City uh, at at the initial announcement that the trial would be annulled. Um, When you left Guatemala City, Kate, uh, were uh, these stakeholders in this trial, were they hopeful that the trial will resume without kind of a rewind back to 2011?
5: It really depends on the constitutional court's ruling whether or not the trial will, will resume. But, of course, there's a huge outpouring, not only from members of the Ishil community who have come to Guatemala City to listen to the trial, but, but many people in Guatemala who are in favor of hearing this case to its end. During the court session, the brief court session on Friday morning, when Judge Barrios announced that the trial would continue despite what she called an illegal ruling from the lower court, The audience members, which was made up, there were several hundred people in the room, and I would say probably 100, 150 of them were Ishil Mayans, who were there to observe the case. When she made that statement, the entire room stood up and cheered and wept and applauded. It was a really moving moment. That kind of hope, that kind of encouragement for the judicial process, I think, is is a factor in whether or not this will be able to proceed. This, This is not going on behind closed doors. Everybody is paying attention to what happens next.
0: Kate Doyle of the Guatemala Documentation Project at the National Security Archive in Washington. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Three years ago, the big news story was the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. It began on April 20th, 2010. That's when an explosion at a BP oil rig killed 11 workers and triggered the massive three-month oil spill. Three years later, conditions in the Gulf appear much better, but many cleanup workers say they're sick. Now, a report in Newsweek magazine traces those health problems to dispersants used to break up the oil. And the report says BP hid the effects of those dispersants from many workers and local residents. Journalist Mark Hertzgard wrote the story.
6: These are serious allegations, Mark. And I just want to emphasize that we gave BP a chance to respond to this before we published, and they did not uh, respond. What they said at the time to be fair, is that they wanted to use these dispersants in order to prevent the spilled oil from reaching the coastlines. And one must say that the dispersants did succeed in that goal. However, it came at a terrible cost to the cleanup workers, to many coastal residents who have come down with a a set of of illnesses uh, related to their skin, their lungs, and their brains. And uh, we have uh, information that BP was aware of those dangers and buried that information.
0: And, and yet we need to be clear about this, and you've reported this, the use of these dispersants was completely legal. BP has also said that these dispersants were as safe as Dawn dishwashing
6: liquid. Yes, BP is still saying this. At their annual shareholders meeting in London last week, April 11. the new CEO of BP said exactly this in answer to a question from the audience. He said that uh, this dispersant is as safe as dishwashing liquid. Evidently, however, uh, Mr. Dudley is unaware of the very recent peer-reviewed study in the Environmental Pollution uh, Journal that shows that, in fact, when you combine this dispersant, corrects it, with crude oil, that the combination is 52 times more toxic than crude oil is alone. Now you say BP appears to have buried this manual, um,
0: maybe they were just in such a rush to get things cleaned up that they felt there wasn't enough time to read uh, a, a long manual and just get the stuff cleaned up, is that possible?
6: That would be a very generous interpretation. They are required by law. Whenever you're handling toxic chemicals at a worksite, by law you must provide this kind of information, it's called material safety data sheets. Uh, you must provide them to the worksite so that workers know A. What kinds of materials they could be in contact with, and B, more important, how can they protect themselves? Instead, what I'm told by the anonymous whistleblower that uh, I was put in touch with by the Government Accountability Project, the anonymous whistleblower says basically that BP told the manufacturer to stop distributing those manuals. That shows that uh, BP was told that this dispersant was very dangerous, and it actively kept that information from work sites. Furthermore, I interviewed a lot of workers and the ship captains who went out there into the Gulf. Not one of them had ever seen this manual. None of them had gotten proper training. Some had gotten some protective gear, but most got none, and none of them got respirators, which would have been the single most important assistance for them. Instead, these cleanup workers were sprayed from the air. And uh, one of the workers I profile in the Newsweek story, he was sprayed four times. And when he asked for a uh, respirator, the BP worksite guy says, no, that would look bad to the media. You have two choices. You can either deal with it or you can be fired.
0: That's Mark Hertzgard. He's written about what he calls BP's cover-up of the dangers of dispersants used in the Gulf oil spill in the current issue of Newsweek. We called BP for a response, and they sent this statement by email. Use of dispersants during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill response was coordinated with and approved by federal agencies, including the U.S. Coast Guard and EPA. The statement continued... Based on extensive monitoring conducted by BP and the federal agencies, BP is not aware of any data showing worker or public exposures to dispersants at levels that would pose a health or safety concern. We've got much more online, including a video of BP's CEO talking about the dispersant issue at a recent shareholders meeting. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, a head on the world. A Pakistani medical student in Boston says his worst fears were realized when he found out who the
7: marathon bombing suspects were. I was angry because I was hoping that this event would not be about Islam, would not be about Muslim. This would be something else, anything else would be preferable at some level.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, Providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's been an emotional day here in Boston. A moment of silence was held this afternoon exactly one week after twin blasts ripped through the crowd at the Boston Marathon finish line. Earlier today, there was a funeral service for one of the three people killed that day. Meanwhile, the surviving suspect in the case was charged today with using a weapon of mass destruction to cause multiple deaths. Investigators are still piecing together all the evidence, and they're focusing especially on a trip to Russia last week by the older suspect, 26-year-old Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Reporter Miriam Elder with Britain's Guardian newspaper is just back from Dagestan. She went there to find out more about Tamerlan Tsarnaev's visit.
2: A picture is slowly coming together of uh, the time that Tamerlan spent there. Travel documents show that he had uh, left the U.S. for Russia for six months. And what the family was originally saying was that he was in Mahachkala, the capital, the whole time, and that he was there to uh, renew his Russian passport and to visit his father, who had moved there earlier. What I learned yesterday speaking to his aunt was that Tamerlan was there for a few months without his father. Neighbors say that he only showed up in in the neighborhood around March. The father arrived in May, and we learned today that he never picked up his passport.
0: So in speaking with uh, Tamerlan's aunt, uh, the brother's aunt, uh, what intrigued you most about what she had to say?
2: There's two things. I guess when you're speaking to the relatives of people who... You know, I was suspected to have committed such horrible acts. On the one hand was her grief and her disbelief. Uh, you realize that uh, in a strange way, uh, there's also the suffering of this family that's that's happening. And then on the other side, what's intriguing is just trying to find the details and piece together this time and exactly what he was doing. And, you know, was he being honest with his family that he was just sitting home and and reading the Quran the whole time? Or was he hanging out with uh, more radical
0: figures? I believe his father said that when he was in Dagestan, he mostly slept.
2: That's not what the aunt told me. The aunt told me that he was praying a lot. He was learning to read the Quran in Arabic, of course, that he was becoming reacquainted with distant relatives, uh, that he'd had some friends. She didn't mention the sleeping.
0: Why were Russian officials interested in Tamerlan years before the Marathon bombings?
2: The Russian officials are not speaking. This is one of the main difficulties in piecing together this story. There's so much misinformation coming out right now. Uh, The latest thing we've heard is the uh, Interior Ministry in Dagestan saying, well, he wasn't here at all, uh, despite the fact that the family members are saying, well, yes, he was. So it's unclear what the Russians would have wanted from the U.S. and then why, if they were so concerned about him, one year later, they would let him into the country and let him travel to a region that's known to host an Islamist insurgency.
0: Has anybody suggested that maybe uh, the FBI and Russian scrutiny might have backfired and actually added to the brothers' interest, or at least Tamerlan's interest in radical jihad?
2: Well, we don't know for sure that he was interested in radical jihad. We're, we're still trying to figure that out. But his mother did, you know, when she talks about uh, him being questioned by the FBI and this feeling that he was constantly being monitored and followed by the FBI, uh, she expresses it with uh, with anger, with a lot, a lot of anger. So I mean, now it's, of course, impossible to say how Tamerlan reacted to it. But if it was anything similar to his mother's, then you would think it would be shock, surprise and more than anything, anger.
0: Reporter Miriam Elder of The Guardian newspaper speaking with us from Moscow. I turn that question of why Russian officials would have been interested in Tamerlan Tsarnaev to Fiona Hill. She's an expert on Russia and the Caucasus at the Brookings Institution.
8: Well, it appears, uh, based on the reports that we have so far, that he had been frequenting websites and making contact with people that they've had on their watch lists And uh, this seems to be in advance of a trip that he made to Russia. And they uh, flagged this activity and obviously wanted the FBI to go and check on him to see potentially, I I presume, if he was going to be posing any kind of threat uh, to Russia itself. They may have been fearful that he was intending to travel back to Russia or that he was in links with groups that may have been planning some kind of action in Russia itself.
0: And do you know what kind of websites those were?
8: No, there's not a lot of um, specific information about that that I have right now. I think we'll get more about this as we go along. But these were probably not the kinds of websites that we would have been looking at on a regular basis. We've been much more concerned about people's activity on English language sites, also on Arabic or Urdu, Pashto, this kind of thing. So this was probably not something that the FBI would have picked up on its own at this juncture.
0: Is that a common occurrence, people from outside Russia coming into Russia and training for terrorism?
8: It's uh, become increasingly a common occurrence, and it's been something that the Russians have been flagging for some particular period of time.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what did the FBI ultimately do when they were in contact with the Russian officials?
8: Well, we'll have to find out more details about this, but these initial reports seem to suggest that they they met with him, uh, maybe on a couple of occasions, and they reported back that they hadn't been able to find anything, um, at least nothing that they uh, found actionable or for a reason for further action. I will be getting more information about this, I'm sure. I'm sure the FBI are going back uh, through all of their records on this and trying to, you know, figure out if there's something that they may have missed. But, you know, this is very typical across the board of similar situations of people from many other backgrounds. Many times, it seems, in the case of uh, the London tube bombings, uh, for example, or Atocha, the train station in Spain, you know, we could give any number of examples. Some of the perpetrators uh, of these actions have come to people's attention in different ways. But, you know, people can't be everywhere at all times. And that's the whole dilemma that we have of uh, terrorism. A lot of people get flagged for a whole variety of reasons, and not every single one of those people is going to turn out to be a terrorist.
0: For you, um, are are there questions that still remain for the FBI in, in terms of answering why they failed to identify any potential danger with this man?
8: Well, I think there are a lot of questions across the board about what did the Russians tell the FBI in the first instance? Was there any further communication back on part of the Russians? Were the Russians just concerned about something he might do in Russia? Uh, Was there any further chat or chatter, you know, out on um, uh, various uh, Internet uh, sites that might have led to concern later uh, that wasn't reported back? I think our overall problem here is the state of uh, the relationship between uh, the Russian intelligence services and the U.S. intelligence services. There's not exactly an atmosphere of trust here.
0: I mean, it seems kind of outdated. And both Russia and the United States have seen recent dramatic episodes of, uh, of extremist violence. Doesn't the need to counter... That violence override this kind of Cold War competition between the Russians and the Americans.
8: Well, you would think so, but I'm I'm afraid it's a sad case that uh, the uh, Russian uh, security services still see the United uh, States as their number one opponent and threat. Putin has actually said this, and you know he is someone who is an operative himself, who's come out of um, a long career in the KGB. And uh, who, although he does seem in this instance uh, to be quite willing to, to help out here, uh, is also part of the problem of not being able to think about the United States in, in, a, in a different way. I think, you know, the, the people in the Russian intelligence service are obviously some pretty sophisticated, uh, smart people there. Uh, but at the same time, there's really a mentality there that the United States is something to be counted. And so, you know, this will be a, a real challenge to get them to think in other ways about the common threat.
0: Fiona Hill at the Brookings Institution, thank you for your time. Thank you. After the bombs went off last Monday at the Boston Marathon, a wave of concern rippled through many Muslim Americans. Who would the suspects turn out to be? Haider Javed Viraich is a resident of internal medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Viraich is originally from Pakistan, and news that the bombers were Chechen Muslims hit him personally.
7: I think my first reaction on hearing this information was anger and the other was disappointment. I was angry because I was hoping that this event would not be about Islam, would not be about Muslims. This would be something else, anything else would be preferable at some level. And I think the reason why we felt that way is such events have been followed by a lot of backlash towards an increase in Islamophobia or whether that's a change in policy with regards to visas, scholarships.
0: And we should say that you are Muslim yourself.
7: I am. I am from Pakistan. I was born and raised there. And uh, I moved to the United States about three years ago to pursue research and then now residency in Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. So we, we don't know how the fact that
0: they're Muslim really plays into any of this, but just kind of lingering residue and, and how we remember the reaction to, oh, they're Muslim on
7: 9-11. Does that still affect you? This is going to get a lot of airtime, which is, I think, the last thing that Muslims in America and around the world want. I think the narrative of a deranged, antisocial white teenager would have been somewhat less abrasive and, and less foreign than this whole idea that these two young refugees from Chechnya were the p- perpetrators of this uh, atrocity?
0: Now, Haider, you said you had two reactions: one of
7: anger and one of disappointment. Can you explain the disappointment? The disappointment stems from, and this is all assuming that their backgrounds and their religion had some sort of link to their motivation, uh, because because it sets everyone back. It sets the Muslim community has been trying very hard to cooperate with the government. A lot of leads have actually come from within the community. And I think that is the biggest defense against such incidents. In fact, one of the, the elder suspect was actually booed off from one of the mosques because he objected to Martin Luther King being used as sort of a role model. I think these incidents puts all of that so far back. And we ha- it's almost like we have to start from scratch again. Just
0: give us a brief kind of snapshot of the things you experienced in terms of of violent extremism when you were growing up in Pakistan?
7: I think one of the most harrowing things that come to my mind is when when the military headquarters was actually attacked by militants. Uh, the headquarters is right next to where we used to live at that point. And then my mother's brother, my uncle, was actually one of the hostages in that sort of situation, and we were the ones who had to go up to his wife to tell him that he's in there. It was something that touched me and caused me... So much anguish. And then my mother, she's actually a dentist in the military. And so many military officials had become targets. And this sort of affected me on a day-to-day basis.
0: Now, when the bombs went off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon uh, last Monday, you were nearby having lunch with your wife. You felt the shake, not sure what it was. And once you knew, your instinct was to get out of there. But then you began to remember frightening moments from your own childhood, I'm just wondering why those memories didn't rush up at the moment of the explosion. Why did they kind of occur to you later on once you were back at home?
7: the re- The reason why they didn't rush back to me was because there was something much bigger that rushing back to me, which is this human instinct of protecting one's life but as as I got some sort of measure of calm about myself, then those other thoughts, how could I help in my capacity as a physician? but then also there's also room for those thoughts of paranoia would i be would I be a suspect if I were to go back at the site or if someone were to sort of not approve of how I appeared? So I think that's why it took some time for those things to come in. It's not all over.
0: Haider Javed Viraj, thanks so much for coming
7: in. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Last week's bombing at the Boston Marathon put police and security forces in London on high alert yesterday. That city's marathon went off without any major problems. Participants wore black ribbons and held a moment of silence in honor of the Boston bombing's victims. There were similar scenes, albeit on a much smaller scale, at the first international marathon in the West Bank town of Bethlehem. Here's more from the world's Matthew Bell
9: bethlehem's stone paved manger square is next to the church of the nativity where christians believe jesus was born it's one of the most popular sites for holy land pilgrims but early sunday morning the plaza was filled with people in running gear warming up for the inaugural palestine marathon a few hundred people took part half of them appeared to be palestinians the other half foreign tourists or expats the event was about sport, but it had an emphatic political theme as well. The head of the Palestine Olympic Committee, Jabril Rajoub, said there was a message here of solidarity with the Palestinian people.
10: I think this is also a message to the Israelis to recharge their mental batteries, reconsider their policies, and start recognizing facts on the ground.
9: One fact organizers pointed out was the marathon route itself, Because the area in Bethlehem, controlled by the Palestinian Authority, is so limited, runners had to do the same loop twice to complete a full 26 miles. Before heading to the starting line, participants observed a moment of silence for the victims in Boston. Runner and spokesman for the Palestine Liberation Organization, Javier Abuid, said it was the right thing to do.
10: The attacks uh, against the Marathon in Boston were not attacks against Boston, the Marathon, or the U.S. It's an attack against the whole humanity. So definitely, I I think uh, most of our people here will have in mind what happened in Boston.
9: Along the marathon route, runners passed by tall, concrete stretches of the Israeli security barrier that snakes its way around Bethlehem. The walls are covered in graffiti and watched from above by Israeli soldiers in guard towers. On the street below, uniformed Palestinian security forces stood guard and cheered. Not everyone in Bethlehem, though, was thrilled about the marathon. In a refugee camp close to the marathon route, a middle-aged man told me, mixing between the sexes is not allowed, it's against our religion. And besides, he said, the tight-fitting clothing on some of the women is not appropriate. But 18-year-old Abu Abusroor, a high school student who ran part of the race, said she disagrees. A lot of people don't think girls should be running in the race, she said, but they should be allowed to run if they want to. Out of a field of about 100 or so runners who participated in the full marathon, Palestinian athlete Abdel Nasser Awajmeh from Jericho won the race handily. He crossed the finish line in a little over three hours, and the crowd hoisted him on their shoulders. The winner made a short but defiant speech, he dedicated his victory to Palestinian martyrs and to the prisoners in Israeli jails, and he said Bethlehem's first international marathon showed that Palestinians can overcome all obstacles. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell.
0: This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. In South Africa, given the history there, it's not surprising that some people think you should turn to violence if peaceful actions fail. But others are questioning that line of thinking. All this year, the world's Anders Kelto is spending time at a public high school in Cape Town, South Africa. It's called the Center of Science and Technology, or COSAT. The school serves impoverished families in the township of Kyalicha. Anders recently dropped in on a class where students were having a debate about the role of violent protests in today's South Africa. Then he got caught up in a protest. The other day, a mob of angry protesters blocked my
3: way.
11: They'd tipped over portable toilets and set fire to a delivery truck. Their complaint? The government isn't providing enough public toilets in their area. These kinds of protests, where major roads are blocked and things are set alight, happen a lot in South Africa. But do they help? That's a question students at COSAT had recently discussed. On a Wednesday afternoon, Ms. Bequana, an English teacher, puts this statement up for debate.
1: If the government won't listen to us, we have the right to express ourselves in whatever means at our disposal. That's the motion.
11: A junior named Pamela says when peaceful actions fail, violence can be necessary
1: government can't hear us when we are talking and making petitions. We need to make action. Action must be done.
11: <laughs> Her classmate, Nkonyisa, agrees. She says if it weren't for violent action, black South Africans might still be living under apartheid.
1: If, like, we were not protesting for our rights, even today we would be still living in shakes and we wouldn't be having schools like these ones.
11: But some other students don't see it that way. A boy named Sive says destroying property is never a right. And he says it's time for South Africa to move on.
1: Just because your grandparents vandalized the roads because they wanted to be heard doesn't mean you also have to do that. There
11: are alternatives that you can go to. His classmate, Nosipo, adds that destroying toilets and roads just hurts the people of Kailicha and it forces the government to spend money on repairs rather than development.
1: The money that is used for the things that you've vandalized would have been helpful to you to, buy, to build maybe like few houses.
11: As the debate wraps up, I ask Ms. Biquana which side won. She says neither, but she adds, both sides understand the dilemma, and that's what counts.
0: For The World, I'm Anders Kelto in Cape Town. You can follow Anders and his School Year series from South Africa at theworld.org or on Twitter with the hashtag SchoolYear. We end today's program in neighboring Zimbabwe. That's where Oliver Mutikudzi hails from. Tuku, as he's known, is one of the great stars of African music, and he's long been at the heart of Afropop and the blending of African roots music with influences from all over the world. Tuku's released more than 60 albums, along with his band The Black Spirits. The latest is Sarawoga, Here's the world's Alex Galifant.
12: Sarawoga means left alone. That's how Tuku starts things.
10: Sarawoga. 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 This
12: new album is the first thing Tuku's recorded since the death of his son in 2010. Sam was 21. He was killed in a car crash in Zimbabwe's capital, Harare. He often played sax in Tuku's band. Music was Tuku's way
10: back. In my case, I used it as therapy just to help me understand that, uh, at times, bereavement is, is part of life. It's not the end of life, it's, it's part of life.
12: There's an old adage in Harari. Tuku tells me. You don't get to sing a song unless you've got something to say. A song must have a purpose
10: it has to give life and hope to the people it has to have uh, something that that man in the street that listener can use in his life to improve himself
12: conversation Tuku is still and soft-spoken. He turned 60 last year. He's also very tall and when he sits he winds himself around a chair like he's trying to disappear. On stage he couldn't be more different. The gangly limbs are let loose and he teases the crowd with his dancing, all old cheeky choreography running from the mic and running to the mic.
10: I mean, when on stage it's, 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 it's more like you're acting what you're talking about. So it has to be sticking to the people so that they remember the song.
12: The death of his son hasn't shaken Tuku's core belief that the purpose of art is to lift people up.
10: Even though the lyrics might be talking about serious issues, we'll be talking about pain and so on, we make sure the harmony is joyous.
12: And to those who suggest he should be more outspoken about politics in Zimbabwe and about the president, Robert Mugabe, he says no who says he's engaged with society's challenges. He makes videos on HIV prevention, for instance, and he has sung about politics in the past. Right now, he's reserving music for other things, for lifting people up. And when he does sing something critical, he's aiming for bigger targets than a single politician.
10: If, if a song is talking about criticism, it's not pointed to a particular person, it's criticism of life, of to everyone.
12: One more thing. When I saw Tuku perform at Global Fest in New York earlier this year, I couldn't help but notice his bright white sneakers. Not the kind of thing you ordinarily see on a 60-year-old man. The sneakers had what looked like an Adidas logo on the side.
10: They're not Adidas really, but um, they're just cool.
12: (laughs) Tuku is anything but ordinary. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in New York.
0: Always makes me feel a little better. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston,
3: I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund.
4: P.R.I. Public Radio International.